I want you to look at this verse. You may be seated if you'd like. I want you to look at this verse. Verse 2. There's a day that's drawing near when this darkness breaks to light. And the shadows disappear. And here's the line. That line. And my faith shall be my eyes. Yeah. Look at that. It's drawing near. When this darkness breaks to light. shadows disappear and my faith shall be my eyes. Have you ever lived under a circumstance or in a time, a season of your life that was shrouded in darkness? Could be anything. And I realize that this is talking about a larger scope, but At the same time, it's talking about us. Have you ever lived under a circumstance where there was darkness and shadows in your life? If you'll open with me to the ninth chapter of the book of Mark. There's a story here where there was a man living under darkness and shadows. And his hope, his hope was that those dark that darkness and those shadows were going to dissipate and that they would dis- disappear. But before it occurred, before that event happened, he had to have faith. We've been talking about belief for some Sundays now. And we're going to talk about belief again this morning. And I want you all to look at the ninth chapter of the book of Mark. And we're going to jump to an event that occurred immediately after what occurred on the Mount of Transfiguration. We pick up immediately after this, the event of, the, of what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. Three disciples and Jesus. Three disciples coming down the mountain with Jesus. And let's be perfectly frank, they're a little freaked out. After what they saw, they're a little like, mm-hmm. And they reach the bottom of the slope. When in verse 14 of Mark chapter 9, the Bible says, When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. So 
as these four individuals have descended the mountain, they've hit the bottom of the mountain, they're moving forward, there are the other nine disciples, they are kind of surrounded by a large crowd, and more than likely the innermost grouping of that large crowd are the religious elite, those who are teachers of the law, and there's an argument occurring. We're preaching this morning on a subject that I've simply entitled Belief Beyond Doubt. And as soon as these people in the crowd realize that Jesus has just landed, the eagle has landed, they're overwhelmed, according to the Scriptures. This is verse 15. They were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet Him. So after having descended the mountain, the disciples are somewhere within a relatively short distance away. This argument is occurring, and it's obviously an argument that is enough of an argument that from the distance that Jesus is at after hitting ground zero, he recognizes that this is not a a friendly place. This is not a pleasant place. There's an argument. How do I know that? Simply because verse 16 tells us that Jesus asked, what are you arguing with them about? Have you ever come up on an argument and it didn't take you being in the midst of the argument to know that's an argument and I'm not exactly certain I want to be all up in that well that's what was happening there was an argument that Jesus figured out was an argument from a distance and we know it was a distance because the Bible just told us that as soon as the people saw that Jesus was there, they ran to Him. There was a little bit of ground to cover. So whatever was going on, this is not the place where you want to be. But, kind of like Jesus, in Jesus-esque fashion, He wades slap into the middle of it. What are you arguing with them about? And there's a man in the crowd, according to verse 17. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son. I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So, in short, he has a teenager. Okay, now remember what he's just said. I brought my son to you. Then we get down to the bottom of verse 18, and he says, I asked your disciples to drive out the Spirit, but they could not. 
To which Jesus has this rather fascinating response. Verse 19, Jesus says, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? And then I can... Do you ever personify Jesus where you kind of read what He's saying and you kind of put motion and emotion to it? You see, I do that all the time. I'm not claiming to be right in it, but this is how I see the world. Therefore, I watch Jesus play it out. I, I, this man says, I brought my son to you. This is what's wrong with him. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit. They could not. And Jesus is like, oh. Oh, unbelieving generation. How long shall I stay with you? He's kind of sitting there. I can just see him rubbing the eyes. And doing the... How long am I going to have to be clocked in this job? Okay? not Like I said, I'm telling you, I'm not claiming to be right. This is just how I perceive things. I run the video, and this is what I'm seeing. How long shall I put up with you? And then he says... Bring him here. Just bring him here. I'm gone for five minutes. <laughs> and this is what happens. Just, 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 nope, don't say anything. Just bring him here. Okay. 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 Granted, that's just all me. I, I get that. Um, there is no theology to back that up at all. But what's interesting is so they brought him. They brought him to Jesus. And when the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. Jesus has a fascinating effect on the dark side of the force. Okay? He has this fascinating effect on them. It's a twofold process. There's a positive side to the effects of the demonic, and there's a negative side. The positive side is that essentially when they see him, they go into a posture that is lower than him. The negative effect is they show out. Why? Do we tend to show out because we're afraid of something? We're afraid. And if there's one thing that you don't want to be and be turned on to this reality is pray for the Lion of Judah. You don't want to be that. Remember the Gadarean demoniac. Why have you come to torment me before my time? You just, if you're a demon, 
you just don't want to be there. But that's what he did. He fell on the ground. He rolls around. He foams at the mouth. Jesus asked the boys, Father, how long has he been like this? From childhood. He's often thrown him into the fire or the water to kill him. Can you imagine the injuries to this son? Can you imagine what this son looks like from his exposure to fire? Medicine at that point in time could only do so much. So this boy was not an awful lot to look at. Scarring would be heavy. And who knows to the extent of it was the damage. And then the man, keeping in mind now, listen to what he says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. That's an important statement to be made. But this is what happens. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus' response which reinforces his initial statement, oh, unbelieving generation. He says, if you can, if you can, if I can do anything. And then he makes this statement, everything is possible for him who believes. Every. And that's, and I'm glad that we get the amens out of that. I'm, I appreciate how we respond in church to that. But I want you to try to put yourself into the shoes of the man who's had a son that from birth has been possessed by the devil. Who repeatedly and perpetually is attempting to take the child's life and in at least one capacity, you, the parent, are stuck with the aftermath of trying to bandage and soothe the burns on your child's body because of the effects of the demonic. I appreciate the amens, but try for just a moment to put yourself in that man's sandals. Let's stop for just a minute. Remember when we began this discussion this morning, there was a crowd. A crowd arguing with the nine remaining disciples. And as we read on, because Jesus asked the question, why are you arguing with them? Meaning, my nine disciples. Why are you arguing with them? And a man, the entire reason for the argument, he is the source of the argument, says, because I came to you with my son. Jesus, this argument is happening because I came to you with my son. Because I felt from everything that has been noised abroad throughout all of Israel, some of the things I've heard you say personally, 
and all the miracles that have been broadcast, I knew that after all this time, and we don't know how old the son is from this passage, after all this time, you were my hope. I believe that you can heal my son and subsequently restore my family. I came to you. Now listen carefully. And I'm paraphrasing. But Jesus, you weren't here. So I went to what I thought to be the next best thing. Your disciples. After all, they're your disciples. And I thought, you know, you're not here. And, and I, I, know, I know that they run with you perpetually. You're really never without them. And they with you. And I thought, surely your disciples would arrive and help me with my son. But in reality, they couldn't. Now right about now, some of you are telegraphing my message and you're saying, now he's about to get on the disciples and by extension, us. And nothing could be further from the truth. Because you see, Jesus' response... Oh, unbelieving generation had nothing to do with the disciples. It had absolutely nothing to do with the disciples. He never said, Oh, unbelieving disciples, why didn't you drive out this unclean spirit? He didn't say that. Jesus wasn't indicting His disciples when He said, O unbelieving generation, verse 19. He was indicting an entire generation of unbelievers. This is the very people who historically know about and have been awaiting their Messiah. And yet, when Messiah comes... They don't believe Him. And because of this argument, that probably, and here I am, I'm probably, the argument probably went something akin to the teachers of the law bolstering the rest of this crowd saying, if Jesus is who He says He is, then, and you're His disciples, then why aren't you able to do exactly what He's teaching and what He's saying? Is there a problem here? Is it possible that Jesus isn't who He says He is and that's why you can't do what we're asking you today? Look at this man. Sounds just like a Democrat. Look at this man. I'm sorry, did I say that out loud? He has a son here who is possessed of the devil, has been from birth, and you're telling me you don't know what to do? You can't handle this? Well, what about what? Maybe Jesus just isn't who He says He is.
After all, He's not here. Where is this Jesus, all-powerful Messiah, Savior of Israel? And the disciples literally disarmed, incapable of addressing the problem. Do you know why I know that when Jesus made the statement, Oh, unbelieving generation, it had nothing to do with the disciples? You know how I know that for a fact? Biblical, documented fact? This exact same text appears in Luke chapter 9. We're not going to read from there, so you don't need to worry. The same transfiguration, the same event of this boy, this son. I keep calling him a boy. I don't know how old he is. But do you realize that the disciples never one time had a taste of the endowment of the power of the Holy Spirit until Luke chapter 10. In other words, they had not even been empowered to do such things yet. Do you realize that the Gospels take place ahead of Acts chapter 2? Do you recognize this to be a fact? Jesus wasn't talking about His disciples when He said unbelieving. He was talking about the people of that nation who were supposed to be the followers of the Messiah and in reality were doing nothing but arguing the point. Even the Father of the Son ended up saying, If you can help. Despite everything that I've heard, I was gambling on the possibility that you were going to be able to help me. And then I got here. You weren't here. Your disciples were powerless. And the argument broke out. And you know, I don't know if you're who you say you are, but if there's anything you can do, would you please have pity on us? And Jesus, remember what God says about Himself? I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. And not moving from His position of Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh, says, if you can, if I can help. Oh, unbelieving generation. And if it wasn't so presumptuous and arrogant, I could hear something in the eternal voice somewhere afar off saying, Do you have any idea who I am? Immediately, the boy's father, in verse 24, exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. 
there is a day that's drawing near. When this darkness breaks to light and the shadows disappear and my faith shall be my eyes. I want you to imagine with me for just a moment this man's predicament. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Have I ever been there? From birth, a tiny baby, that time where you and I grasp up our newborn child and we ooh and awe and we pass that kid around the room for days and the child finally gets completely annoyed with all the adults and starts crying out and the mom says give him here and the whole every one of you know exactly what I'm talking about everybody wants to feed him everybody wants to, to, to hold him everybody wants to look at his little feet and all that stuff, right? You know the drill. And the family is just elated. But instead, this one, all you hear from around the room is, well, maybe he's colicky. Have you fed him? He won't stop screaming. Have you burped him? Is he okay? He won't. He, he reaches out and he struggles and he fights and he claws out because something's fundamentally wrong. And all the joys of parenting have turned into so much mist because there is no joy. Because from his first breath of oxygen, he's had an unclean spirit residing within him. And you think the terrible twos are terrible for you. And so this father lives out a living nightmare until Jesus have you ever had a circumstance where you're hoping beyond all hope that Jesus will intervene in your life because this has gone on, this trial, this tribulation has gone on for so long that you just need relief from the circumstances. But in the back of your head, and in the bottom, the bottom reaches of your heart, you just don't really believe. It's been too long. We've been through too much. It's happened too frequently. Lord God, I'm looking at you and I'm seeing, now listen to me, I'm seeing what you're doing in people's lives. I read in your word what you say that you will do. I feel it. I know that you are God. 
But it's been so long. It's been so long. And I am so tired. And my boy is still sick. And I believe. Will you fix my doubt? Who's lived there before? What happens next is painfully obvious. I mean, it's Jesus. Come on. I mean, you know. He commands the Spirit. Spirit comes out. He tells it, don't you ever come back. Don't you ever come back. And uh, number one, because it's Jesus, number two, we never read about it. It doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't come back. He's gone. And everything is back to normal. And a man who was broken over years, years of, of, of pain, He's now got his son back. He's now got his son back. But there's a group left <laughs> that still has some questions. The disciples. Have you ever felt like the disciples? God, I prayed. I invoked your name. I did everything that all the people that I've ever seen do. I did that. did a great impersonation of a Pentecostal. It was awesome. Thinking about taking the show on the road. But the trouble is, is that we couldn't cast the devil out. Can you explain to us why? There's some discussion as to exactly what exactly what verse 29 says because the King James says one thing other Bibles say another verse 29 Jay do you have that you don't have 29 do you I didn't give you 29 she could probably have it in moments but Jesus told his disciples boys these don't come out they, they're not going to come out. You, you get the tense? You get the idea? This kind can come out only. In other words, uh, you can do what you want, but they're not coming out. Except by prayer. The entire argument portion of this story, the entire, I came to you, you weren't here, I tried your disciples, they couldn't pull it off. Jesus saying, oh, you unbelieving generation, the whole nine yards, the display by the devil, the whole bit, it could have been avoided. But you see, the disciples weren't there yet. 
doesn't that statement by Jesus suggest that if the disciples had been doing this, that the argument never would have occurred? Come on, we're just looking at it exegetically. Just look at it logically. That's all you have to do. Belief. (laughs) Belief beyond doubt. What, did, what was going to happen? Have you ever been in those shoes, the disciples' shoes? Have you ever been there and wondered, God, what went wrong? You see, prayer, prayer isn't just taking up your favorite posture. And going through the exercise. That's not prayer. You may be praying, but that's not what Jesus is discussing. I want you to postulate the idea that you, flesh and blood, breathed on dirt. Possessing the power to extract eternal evil, eternal malevolence, casting it away. I want you to just, just think about that. How would you do that? How would you do that? If it's not invoking the name of the one who does have that power. I've seen on more than one occasion a demon. You guys ever deal with demons up in Bridgeport? (laughs) Freddie's like, "Uh, yeah. Tell me if you had this experience. If a demon ever manifested itself in a service and your people scattered like roaches under a kitchen light, do you know why that is? See, it's happened here. We've had people like, holy cow, and they're gone. I mean, like, boom, gone. And it's not the kind of gone where you have that raid, not that gone. I'm talking about they scatter. Why? Why? Because a devil shows up and we automatically go Hollywood on everybody. (laughs) Let me tell you something. Hollywood don't know nothing. Hollywood's nothing but a tool of the darkness. That's all it is. They don't know nothing. You know who knows something? If you don't know the first thing about the demonic, it's okay because you know Jesus. You know enough. But the reality is simple. If you know Jesus and you're not doing that, your belief is in question. Your belief is in question. I came to you. You weren't here. I came to your disciples. They couldn't do jack. Now what am I going to do? Oh, unbelieving generation. If you're not doing that, 
your belief is in question. There's a reality that if, that if you are in a situation like the man with the son, you come to Jesus. If you've been through it for years and years untold and we don't know, you come and you're saying, Lord, I believe, but at the same time, you're going to have to heal me, deliver me, extract from me my doubt because I've seen this too much and it's done too much damage to my family. If that's you, you need to come to Jesus believing beyond your doubt that God is bigger than the circumstances in which you are in. That's a fact. You have to believe beyond your inability to manifest it in your head and say, this is the one I believe, but you're going to have to help me with what I'm dealing with. I believe that you're bigger than my problem. And my problem is generating doubt. And I believe that you're greater than that. Guys, if you're the disciples... Your belief, remember what I keep saying week after week about belief, not your intellectual assent to the belief in the existence of one we call God, but the kind of belief where you stand in the face of the the forces against you, and you say, I don't know what to do. I don't have the capacity to do anything, but my eyes are fixed on you, and that is where I will stand because I believe. Now, Jehoshaphat's statement was what? Prayer. That's what he did. He prayed. What was Jesus' habit? If there's one thing you can count on in the New Testament, it's this. Jesus had a habit. The Bible even calls it, depending on the translation or the version or whatever, His, his, uh, I can't remember the word. Let's just reduce it to what I've already said. His habit was to do this. I go over here. I'm Jesus. I go over here. And I minister to someone in some capacity. I minister. I deliver them. I save them. I raise them from the dead. I provide food for them. I do whatever. Supernaturally. And then when I'm done, I go over here. And this happens repetitively in the Word of God. And when I get over here, I get alone with God. And I spend time with Him. And when I'm done with my time with Christ, with God, the Father, I come back over here and I feed 5,000. I raise Lazarus from the dead. I cast a legion out of, the, out of uh, the, the, the Gadarene demoniac and then I go over here and I spend time with God. And I, I, I get alone with Him and He and I commune. And then I come over here and I do this, that, or the other thing. And then I come over here and I spend time with God. And we know what it was He was doing because the Bible tells us exactly what it was He was doing. He was one day, and I use this illustration because it's perfect. This is a day in the life of Jesus Christ. He's walking through town. He has His uh, disciples with Him. They are being literally mauled 
by the crowd that is following them. They're moving and they're kind of doing that whole, like I keep on saying, this is, you know, they're moving through the city like this. And all of a sudden, Jesus just stops. He throws on the brakes and said, who touched me? Remember? And how did he know someone touched him? Not because he felt it, because the Bible says that she touched the hem of his robe. He didn't feel her physical touch on him. He felt the power of God move from him to outside of him. The power of God is used in faith. Faith activates the power of God. And so we know his practice was to find a place to get alone with God because he had to replace what he kept on using up. Right? What do you think he did after this? At some point he found himself alone with God. That's what the prayer is for. You don't pray, you don't have power. If you're going to take Jesus as the example, you don't pray, you don't have power. We have to take prayer off of the idea, out of the section of our spiritual library as an obligation to prayer becoming part of our system of belief. Can you imagine that crowd and those teachers shanghaiing those nine disciples all by themselves and instead of them not being able? Now remember, this is still pre-Luke 10, pre-Acts 2. They haven't been endued with power yet. They don't even know that that's a possibility yet. Not until Luke 10. They don't even understand that concept. If they had been, if they had been, and they look in the face of that crowd and they heal that boy, do you realize this story wouldn't even be in the the canon? Do you realize that? So here's the thing. Who here in this auditorium has been called to fulfill the Great Commission? Okay, I've got not even a dozen. So the rest of you aren't. Uh, We're having salvation immediately after the service. All of you who are not called, we're going to get you all saved. Because y'all lost heathen pagan folk. (laughs) Sorry about your luck. Who's called to fulfill the Great Commission in the Bible? Okay, a few of you got saved. You're afraid. That's what you are. You scared. That boy's going to lay hands on me. It's going to be ugly down there. I'm going to have ugly cry. That's what it's going to be. Do you know? In order to do that, you can't be guilted into it. You can't be guilted into fulfilling the career commission. You, you, you've got, it's got to be a part of you. The purpose of Christ on earth has to be a part of you. You have to be transformed or at least be being transformed into his image. That's belief. I believe that you're changing me. In the face of my stupidity, in the face of my carnality, in the face of my flesh, in the face of my temper, in the face of my whatever, fill in the blank here, of your favorite boneheaded sinfulness. (laughs) Fill it in. I believe 
not in what I see, not in, not in how I'm acting. I'm believing that you are transforming me from this awful mess that I am. And you're transforming me into something that looks and acts and speaks and moves just like you. And then you, that's the kind of prayer. And then you, you recluse yourself for little seasons where you have downloads of God. You don't start out casting out demons. You start casting out flesh. You move to casting out demons when your flesh is subject to the Spirit of Almighty God. When your flesh is subjected to the Spirit of Almighty God, that's called being Spirit-led. How many of us are Spirit-led as opposed to carnal-led? I got one. Okay, next week... Uh, Franklin's the pastor. Okay? That's, so you're pastor next week, bro. I'm just saying. If you don't want to be pastor, keep your hand down. That's all I'm going to say. All right? But no, he had to raise his hand. I'm spirit led. Y'all fools. I don't care what y'all doing. I'm spirit led. So we need to make that transition. Once we believe in the transformative power, we go through the process of being transformed. Then we move. Through that vehicle, right there, prayer, we move. And our spirit leading moves us into places like what we're talking about today. It's a process. Everybody close your eyes. And imagine a continuum in front of you. All it is is a line with one point at one side and one point on the other. You learned it in third grade geometry. Little graphs and stuff. Just a line running left and right. Left is your carnality. Right is being spirit-led. Where are you on the line? Where are you today on the line? Be honest with yourselves. Belief beyond doubt. Man, Lord, why couldn't we drive it out? This kind only comes out by prayer, that's why. Stand with me.